1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. Joining me tonight, as always, the world traveler back from another, uh, another road trip to see one of his teams perform and another winning effort, Mike McDaniel. Welcome back from uh, New York City where you saw Notre Dame take on Syracuse at MetLife Stadium.
2: Yeah, you're talking about teams performing. Um, their offense performed fine. Their defense is still one of the worst in college football. So, you know, you're preparing for Syracuse on a short week, so I'll give them benefit of the doubt. Well, it's not really a short week. Uh, well, you know, they're preparing for Syracuse with a new defensive coordinator, so I guess in essence it's a short week. Um, and, and, you know, Syracuse offense that really just lit up the scoreboard, so they were lucky to come away with a win in a shootout. We'll we'll talk about
1: that game a little more in depth here in a little while, but I I will point out that I think that they did their their former coordinator J- Brian Van Gorder some justice. They they tried real hard uh, to stop Syracuse. So, uh, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. We're, we're also joined tonight um, once again back after about a month. Uh, where about a month ago uh, filled in for me. His Hurricanes coming fresh off of a victory over my Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets and. Headed for a, a big-time collision next weekend with the in-state rival Florida State Seminoles. Welcome back, Cam Underwood. Please, I need you to t- avoid trying to take my job this time, because I think that you're, you're, you're threatening me with uh, your, your performance on these here podcasts.
0: You know, it's uh, good to be back, and I can make no guarantees. All I can do is be myself, and you know, if the listeners say you know they want to go to the bullpen and you know maybe switch some things out, hey, you know we got to go with what the people want. But you know, we're just gonna have a good time and talk some football and see what happens.
1: That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, We'll we'll get in here to, uh, to some of these games here starting out. But first of all, I wanted to throw out there. So we're gonna try something a little different this week. Uh, previously in the podcast, we've had it once per week, uh, it's usually come out to around an hour and a half, give or take, maybe five, ten minutes, uh, where we recap the previous week and we, uh, preview the following week. Uh, this week we're gonna break it into separate shows, basically hopefully just get this into a little more digestible, uh, pieces, uh, for you guys, for the listeners, so, uh, we're gonna try that this week, we'll, we'll post the, the recap show early in the week, probably on Mondays, Monday evenings maybe. Uh, and then try to get the preview show out to either Wednesday evenings or Thursday mornings or something like that. So uh, hopefully that's a little better for you. Reach out to us on on Twitter or on on Gmail if you guys can. Let us know what you think. Uh, Together we're at BC Podcast ACC. I'm at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel ACC. And Cam is at Underwood Sports or Underwood On Sports?
0: No, Underwood Sports. So my last name and then sports.
1: At Underwood Sports for Cam. All right, gentlemen. Let's get into week five. Uh, we got to start off with the the big one from the weekend. The the eight o'clock ABC game, uh, hosted College Game Day. This was really some game of the century kind of material. The Clemson Tigers at home, forty two thirty six winners over Lamar Jackson and Louisville. And I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, with Saturday Night Live skits and and such, but. There was a a great character a couple years ago in Weekend Update who would have said that this game had everything. Um, this was a, a wild back and forth game. Uh, Clemson had a big halftime lead. Louisville comes storming back in the second half. Right when you thought it was going to be you know turning for good, Louisville ends up or uh, Clemson ends up pulling away a little bit. Louisville comes up just short at the very end. Uh, this was about as exciting a game in the ACC among big time teams as we've seen in a long time. Uh, Mike, what was your biggest takeaways from this game?
2: Uh, you know, Louisville overcomes a slow start. Um, you you know, they had that, that touchdown early in the game, but they really didn't have a lot going there, uh, mid to late second quarter. I thought Clemson kind of took control of the game there. And I think Louisville was the first time all year they really faced adversity. And I wanted to see how Lamar Jackson would react to that because he's, he's been a good quarterback now for two years, but he hasn't been the passing quarterback, obviously, that we've seen the last few games. Um you know he wasn't that way as a freshman last year and he comes in and it's the first really huge game he's played um at quarterback when when the spotlight is on not only him but on his team and I thought that the way he performed especially in the third quarter uh when Louisville came battling back I thought that was a testament uh to how good the Cardinals are as a team and how good of a player Lamar Jackson is because he wasn't necessarily getting the um you know, getting his due, especially earlier in the year, because of who Louisville was playing. And then, of course, he had the the massive game against Florida State a few weeks back, which kind of put he and his team on the map. And then, um, of course, what he was able to do last night against the Clemson defense, I think we can all agree now after seeing them play, is one of the best in college football. Um, you know, even though they gave 36 points to the Cardinals last night, I mean, Clemson's defense, they were coming after Jackson all night, and he kind of stood in there and made a lot of very good throws, especially. In the second half and, uh, you know, obviously doing what he does on the ground, they, you know, 31 carries for 162 and two touchdowns, um, you know, impacted the game, both running the football in with his arm, uh, just like you expect him to. So I think, you know, Lamar Jackson standing in the face of adversity and and keeping his team in the game um, like he did, it was a pretty impressive final drive, too. I I know we'll get into a little bit more here in a second, but... Uh, really impressive final drive. You know, Clemson had just scored a couple touchdowns to take the lead there late, and Jackson leads his team down the field. It ended up not working out in the end, but you know, I thought Jackson overall performed really well. And then my one other takeaway on the Clemson side, you know, besides how good their defense really is, is the fact that Deshaun Watson is obviously still a really, really good quarterback, um, a guy that's kind of, you know, kind of flown under, flown in the shadow of Lamar Jackson here a little bit because Watson hasn't performed to the standard that we've seen, um, you know, not only when he was a freshman. Um, but, but what we saw out of him last year, you know, coming off of an injury and having the season that he had. So, you know, I, th- I think Watson, especially in the fourth quarter, kind of took the game over. And, you know, Joey, I think, and Cam too, I, I think we should have known, you know what I mean, you know, a home team. Dabo Swinney's now 38-6 and at home against Cle- um, at home when he's been in Clemson. Uh, they're a really good football team. And, and Deshaun Watson, you know, the, the leadership they have there, at the quarterback position, um, doing what he did, throwing five touchdown passes and leading his team to victory in the fourth quarter. Um, you, you know, the Tigers are still a really good football team, the team to beat in the ACC, and I think they showed that uh, last night in what was a thriller. So um, really good game by both sides, but I thought Clemson really flexed their muscles late, and that ended up being the difference.
1: You mentioned how good the Clemson defense played. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that in a game that saw over 1,000 yards of offense that really Clemson's defense was probably the difference maker in it. Um, and giving up 36, 36 points sounds like a lot, but ultimately that's a, a Louisville team that hadn't been stopped in any form or fashion before that. Uh, but you mentioned too the, the the quarterback duel and and Cam the the duel to, in that game against uh, between Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson was really something like we haven't seen in several years in the conference. Uh, who were you impressed with both of them? I mean, are you, you thinking Deshaun Watson's back to what we were used to last year? Uh, what, what's your take on this on this game?
0: Yeah, you know, I think I had the same takeaways as you guys, but yeah, the the quarterback battle. Um, was definitely the the marquee matchup that was worth the price of admission i know that it was on abc national so you didn't necessarily have to pay for cable to have that but you know whatever you pay for your cable subscription to get it in hd it was 100 percent worth it that was you know those are two elite guys you know and uh lamar jackson he's basically been doing it for about us one college football season because when he came in as a true freshman, you know, and he's from South Florida, like I said before uh, on this podcast, you know, so i you know, been around and seen him at some stuff or whatever, but he was a raw guy in high school. You know, that's kind of why he was going to Louisville and, you know, Miami tried to get him late, you know, when we had a decommitment and Florida tried to do the same thing. And, you know, his accuracy hadn't been there. And then you only saw the athleticism, but, you know, I'd, I'd make the joke that it was the uh, Louisville was the Lamar Jackson. Uh, death machine this year because he's the destroyer of worlds no matter where he went I mean you saw Florida State with first round draft picks and you know ostensibly going into the year a college football playoff team and gave up the most points ever in Florida State Seminoles history to, to that guy you know you saw that, Cle- or that that Syracuse game he comes out and just I mean a million yards and points I mean the first play from scrimmage boom up top 84 yards touchdown or 77 yards I want to say you know but he, he played very well you know in that game he had 82 percent of their total offense you know 467 of their 568 yards or 427 something like that but yeah i just did the math on my computer it's 82.2 percent of the total offense was lamar jackson that's still amazing you know and if you saw that you you know that this guy is still great now deshaun watson on the other side yeah he had been the lamar jackson before lamar jackson kind of thing in previous years but he's still a great quarterback he's still a top competitor and you know Even like a Brad Kaya, who, you know, is still, I mean, Miami's 4-0, and his numbers aren't the same, but, you know, if, if push comes to shove and we have to throw the ball like Miami had to do against Appalachian State, he had almost 400 yards. So that talent is still there, and that ability is still there, and in the moments that you need to see it, it's... It'll pop up. And that's what Deshaun Watson did when they needed him to make some plays, when they needed him to be out there and get the ball to Mike Williams uh, late for that game winning touchdown, when he had to run the ball a little bit, when he had to do whatever needed to be done to make that team win, he still has that ability. And so even though it was maybe not as quote unquote flashy as what Lamar Jackson had done, it just kind of reminds you that if you're consistently excellent, that's still excellence. Even if you know it's maybe at a ninety-four percent, you know percentile performance, as opposed to what Jackson can do, and you know Jackson did make some mistakes. And I know people are going to talk about him, you know, taking his helmet off and a little bit of, of pouting and things like that. But you know, you do have to remember he's a nineteen-year-old kid, and he wears his emotions on his sleeve, and you know, he just goes, you know. So I mean, but on either side, those are two of the best college football quarterbacks that you're going to find um, around, and. I think we could have been having a slightly different conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to be persona non grata in, in this household by saying this, but James quick cost them that game because on fourth down with a a one-on-one play on the sideline, the last play offensive play for Louisville, he catches a crossing or a stop route um, and he's on the sideline. And all he has is green and one defender in front of him. And he steps out of bounds with a timeout left now. So he could have stayed in bounds and fought for yardage and, you know, tried to maybe put a juke and get in the end zone. He steps out of bounds, two yards short of the first down marker, unimpeded and, like, un- unforced, you know. And with all of everything that Deshaun Watson did and all everything that, that Lamar Jackson did, he just, he, he capitulated. He gave them the game in the biggest moment. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been a kid, and we all have, you never had that, you know, uh, you know you're in your backyard with the basketball, counting down, three, two, one, shoot, it. ah! You know, pretend it's the bottom of the uh, ninth in the World Series like Joe Carter, and you hit the game-winning home run. or you, you, I mean, whatever it is, you have that moment that you dream of, And that's immediately what popped in my mind. I was an eight-year-old kid in Detroit, in my backyard, shooting that ball onto that goal that's up on on my garage at the house that I grew up in. That's exactly what I thought of. And he had that moment live and in person, in college football, right there. I can make a play and beat the guy in front of me. And, I mean, how legendary would he be for scoring that touchdown and then also elevate Lamar Jackson, who threw that ball? And he steps out of bounds and just gave them the game. And it it just left me with a sour taste in my mouth. Because I know I've been talking about this quarterback matchup for five minutes. But that's how amazing it was. And the last thing that I'll remember is James Quick stepping out of bounds on fourth down. Two yards short of the marker. And not even trying to fight for yards. With a timeout left in your pocket. A timeout that Bobby Petrino still has and cannot ever use again. And it just... And that was, that to me was the letdown of letdowns because there had been such an amazing performance. And like you said, thousands of yards or over a thousand yards of total offense. This, that, and the third, you got big plays, you got interceptions, you got big hits, you got this, that, and the third, and you step out of bounds, two yards short on the last, the fourth in the ball game, and you give them the ball game. I just, that's going to, that's going to sit poorly with me for a long time. And I'm sure James quick, even longer, but, uh. Back to the original point of the question, both quarterbacks are amazing. They're fantastic, and I, I hope that everybody watched that game on Saturday night.
1: They did put on a show. The The thing with James Quick I thought was interesting they were talking about today was the thought was maybe that he just didn't know where the sticks were. He thought he maybe already had the first down, and was just trying to get out of bounds to save some time. I The only issue I take with that theory and that I, I don't want to defend the play that he made at the end of the game was – he he was basically in a one-on-one open field situation. Like, you know, th- this is not, like... It wasn't like he was definitely going to be tackled inbounds, wasn't going to get the first down kind of thing. Like, even just, you know, kind of falling over his man, like he could have gotten the yardage he needed, might have scored. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to mention, like you said, he, they still had a timeout. There's 33 seconds left on the clock. They were going to be on, like, the two-yard line. So, I mean, you had time for what you wanted to do, and... uh yeah, James Quick makes a little bit of a business decision there, and it ends up costing Louisville. Uh, that's that's kind of hard to see how, how the game ends that way, but um, ultimately, I mean, like you said, I mean, I thought oh, other than that, we saw a really good show on Saturday night from these two teams. Uh, last thing I want to hit on here that I thought was kind of cool is a lot of folks pointed out how this was like four games within a game. Uh, you look at the first quarter, it's a struggle. Uh, Louisville's offense couldn't really get rolling a ton. Second quarter... Louisville opens up the scoring early and then Clemson just, you know, puts their foot, you know, pedal to the metal and and opens up a twenty eight to ten halftime lead. Louisville comes storming back after halftime and really the offense starts to to catch fire and look like the the Louisville offense we've gotten used to seeing these last several weeks. And then in the fourth quarter it's all about Clemson rising up and 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 achieving, you know, what they they were there to achieve and, and satisfying that home crowd. So Really exciting game, really some huge performances from both of these teams on Saturday night. It, it sucks that one team had to lose, especially when it's my Louisville Cardinals. But uh, ultimately, a good showing for both teams. And even in the new polls this week, Louisville a, like a the number seven team, I think. They're, they're still a top ten team in the country, and I think deservedly so.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking at that game, you can't all of a sudden say, okay, you have a loss, and you're going to put them behind. Even undefeated teams. I mean, and like we all know that I'm a Miami Hurricane. I'm wearing an orange and green shirt right now. And, you know, I graduated from there. But I wouldn't be as dumb to say that just because they lost a close game, wherein they could have had a play to win it, that all of a sudden, just because they have a one in the loss column, that's not a better team than Miami. Because like objectively, they are. So I think keeping them top 10 was the right move.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm with you. Guys. I'm with you guys there. Um, I, I think that um, you know when you look at you look at Louisville and the way they've played here the first four weeks of the season, even though they have that loss, um, just the way they performed last night and the fact that you know they faced adversity, they came storming back, and you know they, they lose by a play that James Quick, you know, probably should have made there late, stay in bounds, and, and, and try to fight for a first down to at least give Lamar Jackson another down or two and give them a shot at, you know, scoring that game-winning touchdown. Um, You know, the fact that Louisville is right there at the end with a chance to win it, uh, it's enough for me to leave them in the top ten. I mean, this is absolutely one of the best teams in the country, in my opinion. And it's not inconceivable. I mean, I know the Big Ten has, uh, you know, a few teams right now that are playing some really good football, but it's not inconceivable that we can end up with two ACC teams uh, in the playoff conversation um, by the time the season wraps up. And that's even though, you know, even though Louisville now won't be playing for an ACC championship unless Clemson completely implodes. Um, so, you know, I think I think moving forward, this is a situation where, you know, both teams, you know, Clemson obviously stood to benefits. They remained undefeated. But when looking at Louisville, they're definitely not out of this thing yet, especially with the way that they played.
0: Can I make one and last was, point? I'm sorry. I know yeah, good for it. Just stepping on. It. But it just popped in my head. I was like, just went back over to my Twitter, uh, my tweet back real quick. People were saying during the game that this would have been the rebirth of Clemsoning if you remember that term from a few years ago. And I just want to say that that couldn't have been further from the truth because if you remember Clemsoning, Clemsoning was, okay, we're Clemson and have a a very much better team than our opponent and find a way to lose. Think of it as Al Goldening, for those of you who have seen Miami recently. Like, you know, you go on the road and lose to Cincinnati last year. You know, you lose to Washington State in a bowl game. You know, you just find a way where you you look at, at the roster and you look at everything. You're like, this is Clemson. This is Miami. There's so much more talent on that sideline than the other sideline. And the other team is the one celebrating. That would have been Clemson. To lose to this Louisville team that's playing this way with the runaway leader for the Heisman Trophy this year. And, I mean, people are making the joke that's the Lamar Jackson Trophy because his performance on the field is so elite. You know, losing to that team, that would not have been Clemsoning. So, you know, that's just my little soapbox that, you know, just if Clemson loses and like, I mean, if that would have been akin to saying their loss in the national championship game last year was the rebirth of Clemsoning. No, that was just them losing a game to a team that or would have been because they even won this game against Louisville. But, you know, losing a game to an Alabama, losing a game to this year's Louisville, losing a game to a team that's that good in a game that's played that well is one thing finding a way to lose to the dregs of society, that's Clemsoning, and that wouldn't have been what happened.
1: Yeah, there's no shame in, in any former fashion of losing to Louisville right now, uh, playing about as well as any team in the country, and and I don't think that that game Saturday night really changed anybody's opinion of, of Louisville, at least not in a negative way. Um, but th- this, this game, like you guys mentioned, I mean, this keeps alive a, a scenario that we talked about before the game where, both of these teams are probably probably still in the playoff hunt. Um, even one of only one of them is going to be able to go to Orlando for the ACC championship game. The other one is still there. Uh, I mean, if they, if they go into uh, go into the postseason at eleven and one, could still very much see a scenario where both of these teams are in the playoffs. Louisville,
2: so Louisville still got Houston too coming up, and if Houston keeps playing as well as they're playing, that could end up being a big time matchup there mm-hmm. right before the end of the season, where all of a sudden you're looking at Louisville and you're saying, wow, they just beat a really good a really good Houston team on the road. So this is a this is a situation here that's going to continue for Louisville as long as they keep playing good football, they'll stay in that conversation.
0: And the other thing is Michigan and Ohio State are ranked two and four and they gotta play each other. Yep. So one of those teams is going to lose. And that's a team that's in front of Louisville right now. So, and that's obviously in November when that game happens. So, you know, yeah, if they, if they beat a Houston team, that's undefeated. And, you know, I think they're sixth right now, Houston is, so that could be a top six, top five team. And if they win that game and then obviously whoever loses Michigan, Ohio state falls behind them, you know, there's still a lot in front of this team and, you know, in that playoff kind of a thing. So, you know, there's, again, it, it hurts to lose, but there's no shame for Louisville and there's plenty for them to play for. So, you know, just hopefully they keep uh, doing what they're doing because it's, it's honestly been a fun show to watch this year.
1: That's two teams with very real and alive playoff chances. Let's talk about a team that does not have a playoff chance at this point. <laughs> uh, we got to talk about the Knowles here, who found a way to lose in Tallahassee to uh, the North Carolina Tar Heels. And full credit to North Carolina, who played an excellent game, jumped out to a big three-touchdown lead early in this game, uh, they, they played Florida State extremely tough. Uh, but the, the end game scenario here was a little bit of a mess for the Seminoles. Uh, scoring a go-ahead touchdown with less than 30 seconds to go. Uh, DeAndre Francois makes a, a brilliant play to duck a defender and kind of scoop forward into the end zone. Uh, puts Florida State up 35-34. And things kind of unraveled from there, Mike.
2: Yeah, um, first of all, we can finally give Mitch Trubisky his due, Um, and Joey, you said up there, final drive. They have, what was it, 22 seconds? I mean, they had no no time, Um, and Mitch Trubisky completes a long pass over the middle, then threw an incompletion, then drew a pass interference, and all of a sudden, North Carolina has a 54-yard field goal for Weiler with, uh, what was it, three or four seconds left, and of course, a career long, because... Of, of course, right? And so Wilder steps up for that field goal, steps up, hits it, and then, of course, Tomahawk chops uh, all the way back to Chapel Hill, which was one of the greatest things I've seen in quite some time because, as you guys know, I'm not a huge fan of Florida State, so that was a nice little, um, nice little way to, for that game to end. Um, excellent game for North Carolina. And, uh, Cam, this is, this is for you because you and I harped on this after North Carolina blew their opener uh, they gave the ball to Elijah Hood, and he—I know he only ran for for 47 yards—but they kept pounding the rock with him even when the hole wasn't there. And thank you, Larry Fedora, for finally listening to us because TJ Logan it opened stuff up for him. He mm-hmm. caught a couple passes. Obviously, Ryan Switzer another massive game. Right, this guy just keeps making plays. 14 catches for 158. Didn't get in the end zone, but it didn't matter because he, you know, with what he was doing in the middle of the field, it opened up some stuff on the outside there for that touchdown catch by Mac Hollins. You know, Mitch Trubisky has been fantastic. Um, he looked a little shaky in the opener, obviously, right? But he's bounced back since then. All he does is go for over 400 yards for those three touchdown passes and, look, this Florida State defense is in a lot of trouble. And, I, you know, we were talking about this here the last few weeks on this podcast, but not having Derwin James, we realize how big of a loss it is when you see the mistakes that Florida State's making in the secondary and not, not just the penalties that they had there um, at the end of the game with the pass interference and whatnot. They had a couple of other penalties like that, too, uh, throughout the game. But um, you, you're kind of seeing them get exposed in the run game as well. And um, even though they played pretty well yesterday, the, pa- the passing defense is just a sieve right now. Um, and, and looking at the way Mitch Trubisky and one of the better passing, obviously one of the better passing teams in the ACC, performed against Florida State yesterday um, for the Seminoles to lose like they did at home uh it's it's a big time loss and, and the fact that florida state was able to score three touchdowns there in the fourth quarter and then still not have it pay off that's uh, a tough pill to swallow for jimbo fisher and his group so i think it's time really here to reevaluate how good florida state really is and you know how good of a coach jimbo fisher is i know he's a great recruiter and you know the fans are getting restless there in tallahassee which is, which is a little bit ridiculous but You know, by the same token, um, I can understand their frustration with how Florida State's lost here two out of the last three weeks. So, um, obviously losing the way they did a few weeks ago to Louisville and then coming back and blowing the game at home there late against North Carolina um, off of a couple plays that I feel could have been prevented. They had a blown coverage there, obviously, on the first completed pass on the final drive and then having that killer pass interference play there. Um, right before Weiler hit the game-winning field. Well, um, that just can't happen late in games. And Charles Kelly, his seat just continues to get hotter there as defensive coordinator at Florida State. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. But, yeah, Seminoles are officially out of the playoff conversation, as if they weren't already after that 43-point loss a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, how good is Florida State? I mean, I think we'll just have to see how they perform the rest of the year now with two losses and really – um, an outside chance at a New Year's Six left to play for, um, and that's really the best they can do at this point.
0: Yeah, you know, the New Year's Six is what they're going to look for, and I can see them maybe getting there, even with, you know, three losses, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but it's, uh, it's possible because, you know, they have the brand of Florida State right now, you know, and it's a name-brand program, and I get that. But, you know, you're talking about the defense, and that's really where they've been struggling. I just pulled it up on cfbstats.com, which is a great site if you like numbers. But Florida State is tied for 110th with Florida Atlantic, Iowa State, and Vanderbilt in having given up 81 plays this year of 10 or more yards to their opponent. 36 of those for 20 or more. 20 of those for 30 or more. 8 of those for 40 or more. 3 of those for 50. And then one each 60, 70, and 80-yard plays that they've allowed. You know, and you're talking about the defense. And again, that was going to be the calling card to support DeAndre Francois this year. It was going to be, you know, we have four stars and five stars all over this roster, you know, ostensibly uh, almost Alabama-like because of their recruiting prowess. And we have all these guys on defense, and we're going to lean on that defense while our redshirt freshman guy is going to come in at quarterback, and he's the one who's going to make plays. And then you're looking at that defense, and even with Derwin James there, before he got injured, there were problems, you know? And then you're seeing, okay, Derwin James is a very very good player I'm not going to try to take anything away from him he's probably the best safety slash linebacker in the ACC because I think that maybe his future is going to be at an outside linebacker a, a will or something and he played a lot of that in Florida State's style of defense so I'm not trying to demean him by calling him a, a, a hybrid slash or outside back or anything like that he's a very good player he's an elite player and obviously losing him off of defense is going to create some problems but when having him there already had problems on that defense, you're going to get rid of him or, you know, he's removed himself from because of that injury. And now there's just glaring holes. I mean, they're giving up. The passer rating against is crazy, you know. I mean, and obviously, yeah, you had Lamar Jackson, Death Machine, and then Mitch Trubisky, uh, who is, you know, people thought would be very, very good because of his caliber or pedigree. And then that's becoming true. Florida State has some real questions to answer on that side of the ball. And I know that people are maybe looking at Charles Kelly, their defensive coordinator, and saying, you know, if you're supposed to be so good even without Derwin, but we have all these other pieces, where is the result? Where is the adjustment that's going to get a positive play from the defense? Um, and that's that's a right right question to ask, you know, and having seen Mark D'Onofrio's defense for five years and there not being any adjustment ever at Miami, I understand how that goes when you're, you're questioning the defensive coordinator, but Florida State... Yeah, you really have to. I think that the when I was on before, I said that um, on this podcast, I want to say before the season, if you wanted to be great, you had to start DeAndre Francois because Sean McGuire is going to be an average kind of a guy, you know, and that would give you the higher ceiling for performance to have Francois come in. Now, that's obviously assuming that the defense would be better than it's shown, but you know, I think that you get the, you start winning and you get cocky. And I think that that's what's happened to Florida state a little bit. You know, you start winning and then, you know, the fans start chirping and the guys start, you know, the, the players maybe believe their own press clippings a little bit and things like that, you know, and, you know, I think that maybe they, the, there's an overconfidence there that's kind of been exposed. They expect the other team to roll over. They expect, you know, we're Florida state and we're going to find a way to win even, you know, when we maybe shouldn't. If you're looking to a 2014 team or you're looking to 2015, they even won some games they should not those last two years. They probably won one, excuse me, about five or six games uh, that they probably should not have won. And, you know, you start believing that that's going to happen all the time and, you know, that's not what's going on. So uh, the question is really going to be begged of Florida State is what is this team made of? Where is the defense going to be better and make plays? Uh, And how do they rally? Because this is obviously not something that they've been through recently where, you know, they have two losses. Um, one, I mean, they got blown out, like real bad. And then this one, you know, they it ended up being where they had a game that they thought they'd won and they end up losing, Uh, you know, and they're down in the 20s in the polls for the first time since, what, 2012, 11, something like that. So it's been a long time till since they've really had to face these kinds of foundational questions for their program. So you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, the defense getting short because, you know, Francois, he's OK. You know, he made some great plays. He, he made a play that uh, they thought was going to be the game winner. Da, uh, sorry, Dalvin Cook is still Dalvin Cook. He's amazing. You know, they, they still have a really good team. Um, they just aren't winning. They aren't getting the result as often uh, or in the way that they want. So that's really going to how they rally from this is going to show what they're made of.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that there were some comments coming into the year of, I think, Jimbo Fisher saying things like, you know, Francois looks a lot like a, a recent Heisman-winning quarterback from Florida State, you know, and it's like, I think it is exceedingly obvious at this point that uh, DeAndre Francois is not James Winston, at, like, at all. Um, he, he's fine. Mitch Trubisky, on the other hand, like you guys have said, I mean, he looked excellent. He, he currently leads the country in completion percentage. He's... I think sixth in total passing yards and he also has yet to throw an interception this year uh, which makes him unique among the top 50 in passing yards in the country. Uh, you have to go for, for the next quarterback that has not thrown an interception you have to go all the way down to 53 Zach Terrell of Western Michigan. Um, so Mitch Trubisky has been absolutely lights out this year and it helps when you've got guys like Bug Howard and uh, and Ryan Switzer on the outside helping him out but uh, he, he has been as good as advertised, and that, that's been a big deal for, for North Carolina. The thing that I struggle with here is that football being a, a very zero-sum game, I, I don't know what this tells us, you know, if this tells us more about UNC is actually really good or Florida State actually has some major problems. And maybe it tells us both, you know, that, that North Carolina is fully ready to contend on this level on a consistent basis. Maybe it tells us that Florida State really does have some, some issues that they've got to work through and address because, um, for Florida state in particular, I mean, this thing could, could easily start to, you know, kind of spiral out of control a little bit here as they, as they have put up with two losses now just in the first five weeks of the season. So, um, curious to see where, where the Knolls go from here and, and curious to see if North Carolina can keep this up. Uh, they, they come off of a, a last second win over Pittsburgh. They get another last second win over Florida state um, I I don't know. I mean, they, they, what what are they going to do when they when they face other teams in the coastal? Which there's been a lot of a lot of accomplishment there early in the year. So really curious to see what they what they do uh, moving forward. But you guys have anything else on this game before we move on?
0: Yeah, the last thing, <clears throat> sorry, is you brought up Jimbo Fisher's comments about DeAndre Francois being very similar to Jameis Winston. That's that kind of hubris that I'm talking about because Jameis Winston it was a generational talent you know and yeah okay you're going to talk about he's a black kid from the south and he plays quarterback and he's about six two six three and you know the true yeah but you're not going to go around and compare everybody who's the next guy or at a position to the greatest at their position every running back at at uh, Oklahoma state is not compared to Barry Sanders you know and i think that expectation as soon as you invoke the name of Jameis Winston then all of the visions of what Jameis Winston did all of a sudden become thrust upon DeAndre Francois and I think that from the outside from the fan perception and from the the you know from those of us you know journalists and bloggers who talk about the team you know you put that up there and it's hard to live up to that because immediately as soon as okay you lose a game to Louisville, and then boom, you know, now you lose another game at home, boom, you know, you lose to Miami next week, which is going to happen, boom, you know, you have all those kind of things, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, now he sucks, and he's this, that, and the third, and da-da-da. he did everything he could, in the best that he could, in the way that he could, to win that game, defense didn't do their job at the end, but that's no slight to DeAndre Francois, but again, just by invoking the name of Jameis Winston, you've already put him on a pedestal that A, he hadn't earned, and B, I don't think it's fair uh, to the individual, and I think that's that's something that uh, Florida State and their fans and everybody is having to deal with right now.
2: And Francois has a chance to be a really good player still, and they just have to give him a little bit of time. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that Francois was going to be the starting quarterback. I mean, I think that we're all kind of in agreement that, you know, if McGuire didn't have foot surgery, I'm not sure it still would have mattered. I mean, I think they were pretty set, you know, based on what was happening early there in fall camp, that Francois was going to be the guy And I agree, Cam. You know, I think it's a little unfair for them to, you know, as soon as the fans and the coaching staff starts mentioning Jameis Winston, all of a sudden everybody's thinking – you know, this guy's going to be Jameis Winston when times get tough. And, and you know, that's not always going to be the case. And I think it's kind of unfair based on the career that Jameis Winston had there in the two years that he was quarterback at Florida State. I mean, I think it's a little unfair to to kind of put those expectations upon DeAndre Francois when really we've only seen him now in four games. So, um, you know, moving forward, I think Francois has a chance to still be a really good quarterback, and I think Florida State's offense has a chance to be better than they've been here in, in, the, first four, in the first four games. But, um, you know, I think moving forward, um, you know in order for florida state to reach their to reach their full potential here um throughout throughout the rest of the season they're going to have to continue to run the ball well and then you know francois is just going to have to play his game and kind of you know not worry you know if he was worrying not worry about the outside expectations on him as a quarterback
1: no doubt all right the time has come yes cam
0: yes i'm ready
1: yeah i know Miami 35, Georgia Tech 21, a uh, game at high noon, a game that, make no mistake, you know, the, I, don't, I don't think the final score tells the story of this game very well. Um, it, this is, you know, for a two-touchdown win and uh, a, one that was, you know, pretty consistently in hand for Miami uh, from maybe about midway through the second quarter. I thought this was actually a very competitive football game, and there were just a couple of defining moments that really resulted in, in what we saw here. Um, ultimately, Miami looked looked really good, uh, but maybe not, you know, eighty five Bears good like some people like <laughs> were trying to treat them as. Right. Um, Georgia Tech looked better, but still with some pretty big flaws. Um, Cam, what was your what was your take on this game? Were you happy with how Miami performed? What what do you take you know from this game moving forward?
0: Yeah, you know, it. I'm happy with how Miami performed. I think that, obviously, there's always room for improvement. Um, you know, I think that it could have been, I think the scoreline could have been a little bit more in Miami's favor, um, driving for a potential touchdown, you know, late in the, in the game. David Njoku just kind of lost it for a play. He had a, a chop block and a block in the back at-world, which they called unnecessary roughness after the play, which was fair because it was after the play. Um, so 30 yards of penalties on one play, you get backed up and, you know, don't end up scoring there. But even if you get a field goal, then you're up by 17, you know. So I think it was it was a solid performance. You know, we got a couple stops when we needed uh, to get off the field. Georgia Tech, uh, you guys did hold the ball for 40 minutes, uh, two-to-one time advantage. So Georgia that,
1: Tech absolutely sat on the ball this oh game. God.
0: I mean, there were three possessions in the first quarter. Georgia Tech had the ball for about six and a half minutes, and then Miami had the ball for two and a half minutes, scored a touchdown, and then Georgia Tech had the ball for the rest of the first quarter, spanning into the second quarter, you know, when they got their first touchdown on the first play of the second quarter. So, I mean, yeah, there. I mean, and obviously that's what Georgia Tech's going to do. You're going to try to have the time of possession advantage. You're going to, you know, grind on a team and things like that. And I think it was good for Miami – to see that, to endure that because, you know, there weren't any conditioning issues or anything like that, which you'll usually see from a team who's going to be on the field for defense for 87 plays or what that's run plays, by the way, you know, so it's going to be things like that. Georgia Tech, you know, was able to do a couple of things in the passing game early that kind of were unsettling because Justin Thomas is not a good thrower and he hit his first seven or eight passes. So I'm like, OK, you know, maybe looking at the secondary a little bit for that, um, you know, the the inside run on the flex bone, you know, the dive to the B back up the middle wasn't there. But Georgia Tech had great success on toss plays and speed options to the outside uh, with both Justin Thomas keeping it and then pitching it to the running back. And I think, you know, uh, you guys had 267 yards rushing. And I want to say that 190 of those came on tosses and speed options to the exterior of the defense. So, you know, want to see, would like to have seen that maybe not be so successful. But, you know, in the end, uh, got a couple turnovers, returned two fumbles for touchdowns within 37 seconds. Um, You know, and that's backed up with a touchdown previously. So in a minute and 36 seconds, I think it was, it went from a 7-7 tie to a 28-7 Miami lead, you know. Obviously, the fumble returns are kind of flukish because you know turnovers are largely luck, so you can't you cannot really count on those things. But you know, overall, I think that I think Miami did pretty well in the game. Obviously, I think that the score line was kind—I of, mean, it was competitive. Like, I'm not going to say that it was you know a Louisville Florida State you know 43 point route because it wasn't. But I think that the score line was fair and indicative of you know how the game went.
1: I will say, I think that Georgia Tech did a great job of executing its game plan. Um, it, it, I mean, it was exceedingly obvious the whole time that that was the, the intent, was slow the game down, just sit on the ball, and, and and keep Miami's offense off the field. I thought they did a great job of that. Obviously, they had about the 2-1 to one time advantage. I think there was maybe six seconds short of actually 40 minutes of possession for Georgia Tech. Um they, I thought the, the Georgia Tech defense actually played fairly well in the second half. Uh, Miami had the ball for one, two, three, four, five, six total drives and had a touchdown and five punts. Yep. And in several of those occasions, I think they only had maybe a couple of – well, other than the touchdown drive on those, on those five punt drives, I think there was only one first down total. Um, and so that was, a, that was a really good showing from the Georgia Tech defense – But as we've as we've seen before, the the offensive line for Georgia Tech just continues to be a liability. Uh, And even on the two the two fumbles, um, one of them in particular, the the first one where Justin Thomas was hit from behind, there was a Miami defender totally unblocked that that came in and hit him, and probably should have been blocked. And so just you know the 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 total lack of of cohesion there um, is really what cost Georgia Tech here. But Miami looked good, uh, for sure. They, they you know, the the skill guys looked good. The, the defense, very aggressive. Um, yes. I, I was impressed with the the lack of big plays you saw from Georgia Tech as they, they kept the Miami defense on the field. Um, and especially with Miami's tempo they were using on offense, I mean, that, that defense really should have been getting worn down, and they, they kind of held tough. Georgia Tech wasn't able to really hit a lot of big, big plays, so... Uh, ultimately, you know, I, I was happy with Georgia Tech's performance on like 85 percent of plays, but it was about 15 percent, I think, that kind of cost them the game. Uh, but then again, I mean, Miami looks looks really good. Ha- has a big matchup coming. We'll, we'll get there later. But uh, ultimately, I, I think Miami right now is arguably in the driver's seat uh, in the in the Coastal Division, and, and I'm really curious to see how they stack up with the uh, the Tar Heels and Virginia Tech, Mike.
0: Yeah,
2: um, you know, as far as everything you guys just said, um, you know, a couple takeaways from this game. Obviously, I didn't watch it live because I was at the Notre Dame-Syracuse game, but I did watch, um, I was able to catch a, you know, a rerun of it and uh, go back through and, and kind of see the game from, from start to finish, and, you know, obviously I, I fast-forwarded through some of, the, some of the slower portions there in the fourth quarter, but I think looking, uh, looking at Miami, obviously the, the couple of fluky scores that they got, I, th- I think were huge for momentum, um, if, if not anything else. Um, but a couple takeaways from that, you know, I thought Miami's defense performed really well. Um, I think that was, that was obvious, you know, especially with, their, with the pass rush they got on Justin Thomas and, and Joey, you know, like you said, the offensive line for Georgia Tech uh, when it comes to protecting the quarterback um, when he drops back to pass is a huge issue. And Justin Thomas has been running for his life, you know, what seems like for the better part of the last year and a half when he drops back to throw. And uh, that, of course, didn't change on Saturday when they face all the playmakers that Miami has on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Georgia Tech sitting on the ball the way that they did um, was not a huge surprise. I think that that's the way when you face an offense that has shown, um, you, you know, with the Hurricanes to be explosive, as they have, um, you know, in, in their first in their first three games this season leading up to to this game against Georgia Tech. Um, you know, I think the mindset of Georgia Tech to sit on the ball and try to produce with fewer possessions, uh, try to produce points with fewer possessions, and kind of you know get value out of those few possessions they have per game, I think that's the way to do it against an offense like Miami's that can be quick hitting, um, you know, no matter who they've played here in the first few games. So, you know, I think that was the way to go if you're Paul Johnson and it just didn't end up working out because of the turnovers and everything that ended up transpiring. Um, I, I thought Georgia Tech running the football, I, I thought they were fine. Um, obviously, Dedrick Mills had a nice game, um, getting in the end zone twice, having 19 carries for 99 yards. He ran, he ran hard. Um, I think that was – that was pretty clear from start to finish. He was running with kind of a will to him, uh, even when the hole wasn't necessarily there. Um, Justin Thomas, I thought he made a lot of good decisions. Obviously, throwing the ball, you want to see a little bit more out of him. But the whole issue there is, you know, if the offensive line not going to protect for him, he's not going to have a ton of time to throw. Um, he, he's an average to below average passer anyway because he's the option quarterback at Georgia Tech. Um, you know, stereotype or not, he's he's not a, a prototypical pocket passer, and, and that's something I think we can all agree on. Um, I thought Brad Kaya played well, obviously only attempted 19 passes. Um, he was extremely efficient, and he did everything that he needed to do. And, you know, you know, I think Miami's offense obviously didn't have to do a whole lot in this game because of the turnovers they produced on the defensive side of the ball. It was it was more of, you know, keep the ball away from Georgia Tech, which uh, wasn't an easy task, obviously, with what the Yellow Jackets were able to do, uh, sitting on the ball and, and the time of possession factor as well. So... You know, I thought Miami did well with the possessions they had. Obviously, they, they want to have the ball a little bit more in games moving forward, especially when they face a Florida State team that we you know we can all agree is still talented here next week. And um, there are a lot of big-time games for Miami in front of them, you know, from, from North Carolina to Notre Dame um, and, of course, Florida State next weekend. So um, a good win for the Hurricanes on the road, which I think they needed to – to you know, further their credibility as an improved team. I mean, I think we can all agree that they're improved, but they need to continue to take steps forward against better quality opponents. And I think that was a step in the right direction here this weekend over Georgia Tech, because I think it's fair to say the L Jackets were the were the toughest team on the schedules for Miami so far. So um, I, I think this was a good win for the Hurricanes to help their credibility, and now they're they're into the top ten, and um, they got some big games in front of them to continue to prove that they're ranked where they should be.
0: Yeah, and it's crazy to to be back in the top ten. You know, I mean I know we had that kind of flukish year a couple of years ago when we won those games by, you know, smoking mirrors and a wing and a prayer, but you know, yeah, we we're, we're we've won all these games, you know, kind of decisively. You know, Georgia Tech, they did you know, they they held the offense to a hundred and what, twenty five yards less than Um, their previous, yeah, 115 yards uh, lower than any other game that they'd had this year. And obviously, you know, when you only run 46 plays, you know, still 7.7 yards per play, but you don't have that many plays. So, you know, Georgia Tech did well um, with what they did, and they made us make plays. And I think that's what the, and and Miami rose to that occasion and made those plays. That last touchdown drive after Georgia Tech cut it to a seven-point lead uh, at 28-21, you know, Brad Kyle was surgical. You know, they they run the ball one time with Joe Yerby to start the drive, and then they go no no huddle tempo up the field. Amon Richards on the left side for 12. Amon Richards up the left sideline for 31. Stacey Coley across the middle for 31 and a touchdown. Boom, boom, boom. 73 yards and three plays. 74 yards and three plays. Boom. You know, and so we made the plays when we needed. Now, you know, Brad Kaya, I know people are still on this. You know, he's not throwing for a million yards a game thing. But Mark Richt already said that we're going to run the ball more, you know, and it's not necessarily going to be as chuck it around the yard as it had been. And, you know, I think he went 13 for 19 on the game, like Joey said already. One of those was a blatant drop and it was a tough catch for Stacey Coley on a slant, but Coley usually catches that ball. So that's a drop. And then on a uh, one of those possessions that Joey said that Miami had, you know, three and out in a punt in the second half, Amon Richards on the right side, he goes to, you know, take a 10-yard out, and he slips out of his break. And that's a ball that has to be thrown on time, otherwise it's going to be six going the other way. So, obviously, Brad threw it on time, hoping, you know, expecting his guy to be there. Richards slips, and then he kind of gets up and he's looking around. I'm like, no, by the time that you slip and then recover, that ball's gone by you. You know, so I think that the ball was still on time. And I think that Brad High is still, again, one of the top quarterbacks around. I think that he's going to be a high draft pick this year or next year whenever he decides that he wants to take his talents, you know, to the next level. But, you know, overall, again, pleased with the result, pleased with the process, pleased with, uh, you know, the showing that we had on defense. You know, you had two true freshmen uh, get in there, returning fumbles for touchdowns. I'm on Richards, like I'm saying, as a true freshman. You know, you're seeing a mix of youth and uh, experience. In a, in a Miami system, and this is what everybody's been talking about. You want to see Miami play like Miami. You want to see them run a 4-3 defense. Now, we didn't run a 4-3 defense this week because, you know, Georgia Tech presents unique challenges, so we had to combat that uniquely. But this is a Miami team that seems more like Miami. It's definitely improved already over any time in the Al Golden tenure. And, you know, again, just like Mike says, hopefully we can keep that going and keep proving that uh, our our rankings and our press clippings are indicative of who we should be. Oh, that's Artie Burns on TV making a play. How about that? You, alone alumni.
1: Cam, <laughs> uh, like you said, I mean, Brad Kaya, he didn't have a ton of attempts. He had 19 attempts on the day, completed 13 of them. Uh, was probably even a little better than that. I thought most importantly was he didn't really make any mistakes. There were, no, there were no passes that looking back on it, it's like that was a pass that he should not have thrown. There wasn't any of that. I thought Brad Kaya was very good. I will say I still take issue with this idea that Justin Thomas is not a good passer um, because like we've seen, you know, so he started the game, like you said, I think he was eight of eight to start the game, would have been nine of nine if one, one of his completions was not called back for a penalty. Um, and, and then there were, there were two more passes that Thomas threw into the end zone in the fourth quarter that were both dropped by tech receivers. Uh, I, I maintain this notion that Justin Thomas does not get enough help from the guys around him. And especially this year, they really lack a deep threat on the outside at Georgia Tech and that's that's causing uh, probably more issues for the offense than we than we want to give credit for as we mentioned as we talked about the offensive line or the play calling or whatever uh, the fact that there's nobody that Georgia Tech can go to over the top is, is probably about as much of a problem as other as a lot of other things are so uh, again overall good game by both teams thought they both played well played really hard you know got got those oranges and, and juice boxes at the end and uh, so.
2: <laughs> another orange and juice box reference for the absolutely about uh, the last three weeks there on that so that's solid no shortage of those on this
1: podcast thought they were that was a good game for both teams though and and really excited to see what both of them can do down the stretch here let's move on we're, we're uh we're up against it here a little bit we need to burn through these last uh, several games here uh Mike, you were in attendance for this one, Notre Dame 50, Syracuse 33, and if I'm not mistaken, there were about eight touchdowns
2: in the first, like, four minutes of this game or something? It was, it was insane. There were 36 points in the first four minutes and 56 seconds. Um, it was... I was kind of trying to exaggerate, but damn, there actually (laughs) were. There, There actually were, yeah. I realized you were trying to exaggerate. I was like, damn, he's right on this. Um, yeah, it was, uh, pretty remarkable, um... Syracuse's defense was as advertised. Notre Dame's defense was also as advertised. Um, not very well advertised. Yeah, not have. not yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer: They both suck. Um, Deshaun Kaiser was um, every bit as good in person as I expected him to be. I had never, I had never seen him play prior to this um, in person, and, and seeing Kaiser make all the throws that he made. Um, yeah, we're potentially looking at the next quarterback of the Cleveland Browns slash Chicago Bears slash insert bad NFL team with bad quarterback here. Um, he, he's got all the tools to be a very good top-end um, NFL prospect. Um, he the, the one thing, you know, watching Kaiser play, um, you know, he makes all the throws. He's got the physical tools. There were a couple of plays there where Syracuse had busted coverage and Kaiser – didn't, I don't know if he just didn't see it or or what was going on, but they had guys running wide open deep down the field. And on two or three different occasions, Kaiser never even looked their way. Um, That's obviously something that's correctable uh, moving forward. And if you're going to be a professional prospect at the quarterback position, that's the kind of issue you want to have versus mechanics or otherwise. Um, But yeah, Kaiser was good. Notre Dame has struggled running the ball obviously this year. I think it's a been uh, uh, one of the underlying reasons why, you know, other than their defense, one of the underlying reasons why they haven't scored as many points as I think they, they, they could. Um, this is an offense that isn't necessarily struggling, but running the football, they've had some issues. Josh Adams had a really good game 20 carries for 102 yards, was averaging a shade over five yards a carry. Uh, Equinemius St. Brown, uh, can't believe I pronounced his name right, four catches for 182 and two touchdowns. Um, National name champion. Yeah, um, his first his first two catches um, there in the first quarter both went for touchdowns, and actually Kaiser had a throw to Tori Hunter that got called back. He landed on a defender, uh, Syracuse defender, and got up and ran the distance for a touchdown. And they ended up saying that um, Hunter's shoulder was down, or else Kaiser would have been three for three for 204 yards and three touchdowns um, (laughs) in the first in the first three-and-a-half minutes, which is hysterical. Um, good lord. Yeah, wow. so that that ended up getting called back, so it's not quite as funny um, as we, as it could have potentially have been. But, um, yeah, Notre Dame's offense looked really good against a lesser Syracuse defense. Um, despite all the points scored in the first four-and-a-half minutes, it actually took a really long time for both teams to get back on the scoreboard. It took to, to like, the, the five- or six-minute mark of the second quarter of the uh, – the second quarter or something like that for both teams to start scoring again. So there's a long lull after all the scoring in the first four minutes, but um, 50 to 33, neither team can play any defense. Um, Obviously Notre Dame firing Brian Van Gorder. I wouldn't say it necessarily paid off because um, they, they still gave up um, nearly 500 yards of offense. But um, I was really impressed with Eric Dungy at, at Syracuse, the quarterback. I think that this system obviously fares well for him. It's a, it's a quick hitting passing system, which you know, for him to make quick reads and make all the quick throws, I think definitely benefits him as a thrower. Um, he's thrown for over seventeen hundred yards this year already. And he leads the ACC in that department, so it's pretty remarkable. But um, you know, I think Syracuse is definitely heading in the right direction, and um, you know, for both for both teams, I mean, it's it's a game in which you know neither team obviously is is playing for anything other than bowl eligibility at this point. Um, but if you're Notre Dame, especially, this is a game that you absolutely had to win, and I'm not completely sold on Brian Kelly necessarily being the coach for Notre Dame moving forward. I know that sounds a little bit crazy considering the success that they've had in, in the last few years and how good of a team they were last year up until the last couple of slip-ups against Stanford and then of course in the bowl game and the Fiesta Bowl against Ohio State. But um, a lot of defense miscues and stuff that should be corrected as a coaching staff hasn't been corrected now, even with firing Brian Van Gorder, So Notre Dame has some serious issues on defense and, um, the issues don't necessarily extend to the offensive side of the ball, but I think they will moving forward because Deshaun Kaiser will definitely declare for the NFL draft, I believe, at the end of this season.
1: Uh, I want to point out here for Syracuse another huge game for another name that I'm confident I'm pronouncing wrong. Uh, Amba Etatawo, the receiver, seven catches, 134 yards, and a touchdown, and that actually dropped his receiving average in games. Uh, he He leads the country with 168 yards per game receiving uh that's that's a real good ball player for Syracuse but Cam I I realize you probably didn't get to watch this game given that it was going on at the same time as Miami's game with Georgia Tech and given
2: and also given the fact that nobody actually cares (laughs) because these were like these are both teams
1: that aren't exactly good at football at this point Notre Dame has like snuck its way out of relevancy um Cam, even even amidst Notre Dame putting up a super casual 654 yards of offense in this game, something tells me that you're not quite shaken in your boots about Miami having to go, you know play with Notre Dame here at the end of October.
0: Not at all. Um, you know, I, there's a famous saying: respect all opponents, fear none, and that's exactly where I am with it. You know, I do believe that you know Syracuse's defense is still bad. You know, I think Syracuse is going in a, in a right direction with Dino Babers. I think putting in that Baylor spread system is going to be good for them because it kind of it operates in the fringes. You know, it's a, a maximization of, of, of resources. You know, so you're not going to get the five-star All-American guy, high school recruit to go to Syracuse, but you can get a bunch of guys and spread the ball out just like you did at Bowling Green, you know, or something like that, uh, where Dino Babers was previously. So, you know, I, Notre Dame should have won that game, and they did. And it was funny because, you know, while I was sitting here on my couch watching uh, the Miami game, like, I just saw my timeline. Touchdown, 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 you know, touchdown Syracuse, touchdown Notre Dame. You're like, what is going on? You know, so uh, it was it was entertaining uh, to kind of be interjected in that same 12 o'clock window. But no, I'm not I'm not scared of any team that's in front of us. And now, you know i don't think that miami is to the place where we're going to win all of our games i think that we're going to be in all of their all of our games uh and i think that we're going to you know maybe drop one or two because you know it's very infrequent that you find an undefeated team uh in the history of college football, let alone in this current state of college football. But, yeah, going into Notre Dame, and I'm going to that game. I'm going to be Mike McDaniel for a week. I'm actually, I got my flights all uh, together. You know, I'm going to Chicago, where both of my parents are from. So I'm going to go hang out with my family members. You know, and then on uh, game day morning, on Saturday morning, drive down to South Bend and everything. So I'm going to be on the road, and I'm going to see that game personally. And I'm excited for it. But, no, there's definitely nothing that scares me about notre dame and when we had played them previously you know up in soldier field and, and things like that a few years ago uh that was the infamous philip dorsett dropping two wide open touchdowns on back-to-back plays to start the game game um that was a team that i looked at and i said man notre dame those are some big boys that's gonna be a good yeah, I, don't, I don't think that we're gonna be in that game this year's team does not give me that feeling so hey you know hopefully you know we do what we need to do and handle that business but yeah i'm looking forward to that trip definitely
1: Notre Dame still with some some major flaws. Let's move on here. Mike, your steaming deacons. The steaming deacons are no more. The steaming deacons no longer undefeated. They gave up 527 yards to NC State. The Wolfpack wins 33-16 in Raleigh. Uh, so I, I think we were talking about last week a little bit how it seemed like. It was in play for Wake Forest to be like the fourth best team in the Atlantic, which is actually like a major accomplishment for, for them and kind of where they've been recently. I, I'm not so sure that's on the table at this point, given what we saw against NC State.
2: Yeah, uh, Wake Forest defense that I was harping on uh, the last few weeks, no longer a thing. Um, they give up, what, like 530 yards, something like that. Um, to NC State, who, you know, to this point had played absolutely nobody, so uh, not the best Best showing for my scheme in deacons, but um you know they'll bounce back we're still we're still going bowling this year so um, yeah you know I don't know uh you know obviously rough showing for wake Forest. did didn't have much in the way of offense, but you knew that you know the offensive output they were putting out the last couple of weeks wasn't going to continue, and this was the game where of course it didn't continue, and they had all the issues on defense and and you know that that hurt them as well so um You know, I think Wake Forest, they're they're an improved team, but this kind of, you know, proves, all kidding aside, that they're uh, nowhere near where they want to be. But, um, you know, by by the same token, um, you know, only losing by two touchdowns in a game where you give up 530 yards on defense um, is a step in the right direction for Wake Forest, who, you know, ordinarily would not even be hanging around in a game like this. So, um, you know, if you want to take – you know, a, a moral, it's sort of like a moral victory. There are no moral victories in football, obviously, but if you want to take one from this game, I think that would be it.
1: Luckily for the Wake Forest offense, they got a chance to get right next week because they host Syracuse, who has not really <laughs> provided a whole lot of way, a whole lot in the way of a defensive challenge for anybody. Um, Kim, are you are you on this Wake Forest hype train? Are they, are they getting on that uh, that quest for six wins and bowl eligibility?
0: I think they're on that quest for six wins, and I think that they can find it. Um, Syracuse that game to, uh, next week is going to be interesting because I don't think that Wake Forest can score enough to win that game because that's going to be a game where they're going to have to put up damn near fifty to win it, and I don't know that they can be consistent in their offensive output for that. But you know, I think that they are better than they have been, um, and I think that they are going to. Push for bowl eligibility with only two more wins needed for that. So you know we'll see what can happen with that. But you know on the other side of the of the token, you know North Carolina State, you know put up a nice performance. You know they were the home team there, and that's a tough place to go play. And you know Miami actually has to go there towards the end of the year. So you know I'm, I'm interested to see that. Oh, that's my takeaway more than the Wake Forest thing because we don't see them for another year or two. But uh, you know it's it's a fun little story. So and I wrote that you should root for them in our rooting guide this week. So you know I did root for them, and unfortunately came up a little short, Mike but uh, hopefully, you know, they get to a bowl game and then, you know, have a time in the postseason where we can see the Steven Deacons.
1: Meanwhile, NC state still in position to, to maintain the status quo as fourth best team in the Atlantic. The bar, Joey, <laughs> <laughs> NC state remains the bar, uh, in, in 2016, who would have thought, um, curious to see what they can do moving forward too. that. That offense has looked pretty good the last couple of weeks. Let's move on. We've got a few more to get through here. Uh, So, I thought there was a a good point made this morning on on SB Nation's Wake Up College Football with Ryan Nanny and Dan Rubenstein. Uh, They talked about how Notre Dame has had a lot of problems this year, and I think has lost three games already to Texas, Michigan State, and Duke, who then have followed up those performances by being kind of bad, and it was Duke's turn this week. Virginia 34, Duke 20. Duke throws five picks and just I don't know if you saw it too but there were some pictures of the stadium during this game and it was like it was like you told somebody that the whole place smelled like a garbage dump or something like just nobody <laughs> had any interest in being there from a fan perspective it was what it looked like this was not good from Duke I don't know that it tells us a ton about Virginia but man that's that's a demoralizing follow-up to a win over Notre Dame for the Blue Devils I was
2: gonna say like outside of the top three or four teams in the conference, we know nothing about some of these teams in the middle. like her, I mean, more towards the bottom, I guess. Virginia and Duke, we know nothing about them. Duke goes to South Bend, beats Notre Dame, comes back the following week. Daniel Jones lays an absolute egg. Five interceptions. That is as freshman of a performance as you could possibly come up with at home against a really bad Virginia team who now has two wins. Um, so, you know, for Virginia and Bronco Mendenhall, They've won a couple straight here, and you know they were the laughing stock at the conference, and now they've scraped off a win against a Central Michigan team that, Joey, I know you and I were talking about as being a, a team, at least offensively, that could really score some points, and Virginia beat them. And then to come back here and go on the road and win a conference game that you absolutely needed shows the, the will of a Virginia team that, definitely could have been broken with how they performed the first three weeks, especially with the loss in the opener to an FCS opponent. So Virginia seemingly is trying to turn their season around. And meanwhile, I still know nothing about Duke. I don't know if they're any good. I don't know, you know, I I guess they're well-coached because Cutcliffe, you know, historically has had his teams ready to go. But if you're ready to go, you need to beat teams like Virginia, and Duke
0: wasn't able to do that on Saturday.
1: Cam, these two teams are still the basement of the Coastal, right?
0: Yeah, they're definitely going to be, well, Virginia, definitely. Um, I don't know about Duke. I think maybe Duke because, you know, ahead of them, I would put Georgia Tech. I would definitely put Miami. I'd definitely put North Carolina.
1: Uh, Virginia Tech and Pittsburgh?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, definitely. Those two teams would be, <laughs> the, because I'm taking Virginia Tech, I'm taking Pittsburgh over, uh, over them as well. So, yeah, you know, I think, and I, I said this for the last couple of years, Duke is not that good. And because if this was actually the basketball portion of basketball, you know, season or basketball conference podcast, then, of course, yeah, you know, Duke would be at the top. But in football, they're just they've been an average, very average team. And, you know, they they're talking about having this freshman come in and play quarterback uh, and he's, you know, the next coming of who of Steve Spurrier you know, or whatever. Uh, well, Steve Spurrier didn't even go there. He went to Florida. He coached that dude. But, you know, they're, they're trying to make him out to be this this world beater, and he just simply isn't. So, you know, you're having those things and uh, where you have the growing pains of, okay, he goes in and plays basically a perfect game at Notre Dame, and then they lose at home. You know, and I think that this is indicative of what this team is. And, you know, if you spin that forward, you know, that gives me more pause to think about how average Notre Dame is. Because if this team is able to go in there and there, I know that you can, can get beat on any in any single week. But, yeah, these are the two teams that should be the teams, you know, at the bottom of the Coastal Division. And, you know, it's the fact that Virginia won this week's game proves that point to me. Because if you're a good team, there's no way that you lose to this year's Virginia team. And they did. So, yeah, bottom two, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I think it's – Conceivable that neither team wins another conference game going forward. I guess I haven't looked at uh, either schedule, but ultimately, I Virginia put up 34 points on a Duke defense that's not, you know, anything particularly dangerous, and got five interceptions to help out with that. So, um, good game for Virginia. Glad they were able to get a, a conference win. If I'm not mistaken, is that the the first under uh, Bronco Mendenhall? Yes, indeed. Yeah, so a good start for Virginia, but uh, might be a little bit of tough sledding ahead. Let's move on. we got two more out-of-conference games this week we've got to talk about. First of all, Pittsburgh hosting Marshall. Pittsburgh comes away 43-27 winners. Uh, the Panthers, I could see this still being a bit of an unsatisfying performance for a lot of Pitt fans out there. Uh, Pittsburgh went up big in this game. I think they were up 27 nothing at halftime. And then things kind of started to turn. Uh, Marshall comes out and, and makes it a game. At one point, it was uh, thirty to twenty-seven, and, and so Pittsburgh had almost completely lost a, a twenty-seven point lead at home to uh, you know an, a drip of five team in Marshall. So it's good that they got the win. They're, they're back kind of on the right track after a couple of rough losses here, but. Man, Mike, Pittsburgh continues to to just show some some cracks in the armor, and I, I, I'm worried. I'm worried about this team moving forward. I, I, I just they're having a lot of issues in places that I wouldn't have expected them to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the surprise here. Well, there are two surprises. I, th- I think one is that Pittsburgh's offense is better than we thought. Um, I, I think that's a fair a fair assessment uh, um, through you know the first quarter of their season, or first third of their season, I should say now. Um, defensively, I'm surprised that Pat Narduzzi defense is having this many issues, of course, in the secondary and the issues they've had here um, but the last few weeks. And when you're looking at a team um, like Pittsburgh and you're considering who the, who the defensive coordinator is in Narduzzi, um, it's, it's pretty remarkable that they're having these sorts of problems and against opponents that you wouldn't expect to completely light them up Uh, Save for North Carolina. Um, You know, Marshall had some success throwing the football, especially in the second half, which concerns you because Marshall's not a very good football team, and Pittsburgh still has a lot of tough opponents here uh, left on their schedule. And if, you know, teams can throw against them, I think there are plenty of teams here in the ACC remaining on Pitt's schedule that can have some success in the passing game. And if that continues to be an issue for Pittsburgh. I I have trouble seeing them reach a potential that I think they can reach with the athletes they have on both sides of the football. So I'm with you. I mean, Pittsburgh definitely concerns me.
1: We check the, uh, the game log here. Oh, Marshall only 240 passing yards. That's a, a stark improvement from the what? 1300 yards. They'd given up the three weeks prior. So, uh, some improvement there for the Pittsburgh defense uh, in the passing game, at the very least, uh, rushing, Still, I mean, only gave up 104 yards, so kind of interesting that Marshall was able to make this one close. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, a win for Pittsburgh. That's a good win, but would have liked to see it a little easier, surely, if you're if you're a Pittsburgh fan. Last one, Boston College 35, Buffalo three. Uh, Mike, you weren't sure if you couldn't remember if you had taken Wake Forest plus 10 or Buffalo plus 17 last week in your pick of the week. Uh, but certainly in this one, BC was. Uh, or Buffalo was no match for BC here uh, as they kind of ran away with this one.
2: Yeah, it turns out my pick of the week doesn't matter because I lost again. So I'm, I'm on a roll there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, how can I be confident in Boston College, right? Um, you know, in hindsight, I guess. Uh, I'd go back and I'd make the same pick again. So, you know, there's that. Um, yeah, you know, Boston College, it, it's good to see them score some points um you you know their offense is a concern of theirs with you know the success their defense has had in recent years and then the issues they're they've had on offense consistently it's good to see them score points and win a game they're supposed to win in relatively easy fashion so yeah nothing else to really say in an out conference game other than it was a good win for boston college
1: that's what is that? Uh, about thirty-eight points per game the last two weeks for Boston College's offense over Wagner and Buffalo, a trend that is likely to break this weekend when they play Clemson. Just for what that's <laughs> worth, uh, Cam. I don't know if you've gotten to, to catch any Boston College this year. I mean, what like what what is there? What should we be expecting from Boston College moving forward? It seems like the defense is maybe not quite as as magical as they were last year, although they still are top five in the country in yards per play
0: yeah and sorry again this is excuse me leading
1: the country in yards per play right
0: but that's uh something that i spoke of when i was on here previously because you know their previous defensive coordinator don brown went to michigan so obviously they have a little bit of a different well they not a little bit they definitely have a different defensive coordinator and obviously you know when you lose guys to graduation some of those guys who have been in that program for a few years you know that that institutional knowledge, as it were, kind of leaves the field. So you replace that. Honestly, I think that the thing for them, and I wrote this in our rooting guide last week, is I want to see them maybe just make it tough for some of the teams in front of them. And they're in the Atlantic Division, so that means Florida State, Clemson, Louisville, North Carolina State, the top four in, in that division. But maybe just, I mean, they're just they're just some dudes who, who want to play tough over at Boston College, and I want to see them make life tough. For those teams against whom they play. That's it. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe try to steal a game here and there, but, you know, that's really probably not too realistic considering, you know, they're going up against teams who have much better talent and production and experience and those things than them but yeah just really just make life tough lean on that defense be opportunistic with that offense you know Patrick Tolls their quarterback who's you know he transferred from Kentucky so he has some experience uh from years of playing in the SEC maybe he makes some plays you know things like that so just be opportunistic on defense or sorry on offense and just really be make life tough on defense and then have the chips fall where they may but that's you know, and then any any positive result that they get from that is, you know, just a bonus, but that's what I'm looking for from Boston College.
1: One thing that we can never actually bring into question, those guys up at Boston College are definitely being dudes. <laughs> Serious Every dudes at Boston College. Oh, Every day, dudes at Boston College. All right. Uh, so to, to kind of put a nice little bow here on, on uh, week five, before we get into a couple of awards for the week... Uh, Cam, what was the biggest thing that you learned this weekend about the conference as a whole, whether, you know, an individual team or kind of what we've seen on on more of the larger, bigger picture stuff?
0: I think the biggest takeaway is that ACC football is better than people want to believe. I think that it's, you know, been SEC is, you know, light years ahead of everybody else was the perception. But, you know, as of today, both conferences have six teams ranked in the top, in yeah, the AP top twenty-five, Miami and uh, sorry, Miami and Clemson and who's the third one? Louisville are all in the top ten, you know. So you have top-end talent, you have depth of talent, you know. And even when we're talking about some of these other games, you know, like a a Syracuse, you know, they they have intrigue to them. North Carolina State, you know, they have one of the toughest home field advantages in the in the country. You know, Pittsburgh, while they did struggle to hold on to the lead that they built, that's a solid team as well. So I think that ACC football across the board has really stepped its game up over the last year and a half or two years, and I think that's a positive thing uh, for everybody in this conference going forward.
1: Mike, what you got on this weekend?
2: I think Louisville's for real, and I know that, you know, some believe that already, but when looking at Florida State, it was really important that, you know, once Florida State lost yesterday, and I know that Louisville's not necessarily paying a lot of attention to this, you know, because they've been there, done that, and they've already blown out Florida State. But once Florida State lost the way they did yesterday in North Carolina, it became all the more important for Louisville to come out and play the way they did, that they did in prime time against Clemson to prove that, hey, even though Florida State might not be as good as maybe everybody thinks that they are, Louisville is definitely as, as good as advertised. And, um, you know, we're, we're talking about how good the Clemson defense is, and, you know, they still give up, you know, the points that they give up to Louisville and still feel like that, uh, you know, it's been a pretty good performance by a Tigers defense. And I think that's a testament to how good Louisville really is. And I think you can also make the argument right now that two of the top four teams in the country reside in the ACC in Louisville and Clemson, no matter what the rankings say. And, and I think that Louisville... Um, Still has a say in this thing, um, you know. Moving forward, and th- that's something I, I really didn't believe, you know, heading into the weekend that there could be two ACC teams, you know, potentially getting into the playoff. And of course, we have a long season to go here. Um, a lot of teams are just getting into the beginning of conference play, but um, I think it's fair to say that you know we know anything can happen, and, and you know upsets happen every week. And the college football rankings, um, as far as the playoff is concerned, is, is a moving is a moving target, so to speak and, you know, a lot of thing, different things can happen here throughout the course of the rest of the season, but I think at this juncture uh, we can agree that Clemson and Louisville are two of the best teams in the country, and you won't find a game perhaps the rest of the season that's as good as the one that we saw on Saturday night.
1: Right there with you guys. I mean, I think that this was a, a huge weekend for showing what the ACC is capable of on the national stage. Um, obviously with the two juggernauts, Clemson and Louisville, uh, and then there's a lot of other good performances too, obviously from Miami and uh, North Carolina, things like this. I will say I was a little disappointed in what we saw from Florida State that they they got down as much as they did early on and weren't able to pull it out at home. Um, I, I thought that that was you know a little odd, uh, not 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 what we're used to at the very least from Florida State. But uh, ultimately, a lot of a lot of really good stuff from from the ACC this weekend. And that brings us to the Go ACC moment of the week um, and so we talked about this a little bit before we went on the air here uh and and i thought cam you had a great idea that this is this is typically an award that we give out as like a totally like sarcastic thing uh, of just you know something that was a total mess that happened and is just kind of a, a face palm kind of thing but there weren't any really obvious candidates here this week and 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 i thought that you had a great idea of how to handle this this week if you kind of wanted to talk us through it
0: yeah um you know, having been on before, I understand the Go ACC moment of the week, you know, it's going to be a tongue-in-cheek kind of facetious thing. But, yeah, you know, there were so many things, you know, and you could have made some arguments for a couple of things. You know, like, uh, for example, Pittsburgh almost blowing that lead or the two fumbles returned for touchdowns in three plays that Georgia Tech gave up. You could have made those kind of things, but that's like, eh. So instead, I said, you know, how about we actually just kind of honor – the excellence that we saw on saturday night you know and for every year in the sec they're talking about oh lsu and alabama or you know whoever is the game of the century but you know that that clemson louisville game was outstanding fantastic football and the best representation of what you know co- collegiate athletes or athletics can be um you know and that was on the na- national and worldwide stage and th- those were two acc teams and I, I know that Louisville lost that game obviously, and we've talked a lot about that. And Clemson, you know, came back and they won that game. Um, but everything that happened in that game, that was just spectacular. So I think honor, you know, honoring what they did and the the excellence that they showed, I think that that's you know a a perfect ACC moment of the week. So that's you know what I thought we should do maybe uh, this week to you know kind of buck tradition. But yeah, you know, just really extolling the glories of Clemson and Louisville, that game that we saw on Saturday night for the go ACC moment of the week.
1: And I think you look at big top five premier matchups that we get kind of kind of rarely during the regular season in college football. And, and a lot of times they're built as this game of the century kind of thing. Uh, and, and obviously the quarterback matchup, a big deal with this weekend and everything like that. I I thought that the, the ACC and Clemson and Louisville putting on this game, I, I thought that that was about as good as anything else we've seen from the sec or the big 10 or anything else in, in recent years so was really impressed with what we came away with there mike
2: yeah um y- you know and to cam's point you know we're sitting here and usually we're using the go acc uh, moment of the week to uh, make fun of them one of the more ridiculous plays or moments or series of plays you know in the conference and. You know, I, you know, to piggyback off of everything that Cam said and and what you said here, Joey, uh, you know the the ACC is coming to a point here where I think uh, fans across the country, no matter what team you root for, ACC or otherwise, is starting to really believe that this conference is heading in the right direction on the national stage. Um, and this is top to bottom. This is from the top teams in the conference to who they have. Um, you know, depth-wise, moving moving down the list, you you look at a Syracuse team that's obviously improving. You look at NC State, looking like, as they've looked here in, in the first third of the year. Um, you look at Virginia Tech and Miami, improving in the coastal. Uh, North Carolina still playing well. Um, you, you know, I, I think there are a lot of teams that are heading in the right direction in the ACC, and I, I think that all culminated there um, in, in the game on Saturday Saturday night with how Louisville and Clemson. Uh, we're both able to perform in a game like that on national TV that everybody was watching. So, you know, two of the best teams in the conference, two of the best teams in the country and really showcasing what the ACC has to offer here, um, from a football perspective when they've been, you know, frequently referred to as basketball conference, of course, which is, as we so definitively named this podcast, so, um, you know a really good weekend for the conference and you know it all culminated in that in that Louisville um, in that Louisville Clemson game as, as the go ACC moment of the week just the you know how they were able to play and um, let's hope the ACC continues to have weeks where they continue to play like this across the board and there are a lot of teams that you know start to earn the respect that maybe they deserve go ACC indeed last thing here on week five
1: before we we get out of here uh, now that we're breaking this thing up into two podcasts to be more, uh, more digestible chunks. Uh, this one we're only at a, about an hour and twenty-two minutes, so this is doing well. Um, <laughs> we got the uh, the the recently named Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award. <laughs> we got to hand that one out. We can't we can't get out of here without some hubris. It sounds, uh, it sounds
2: even better when you say it out loud. You
1: know? Cam is Cam is all about this award. Yo, <laughs> I love this thing. I
0: love this award when. Because there's a spreadsheet, so a little inside baseball where you know the topics are like run down on the Google document. So I open it up and we're talking before the show, and I didn't really look at it because you know I need to look when we're going to get ready to record. And I saw this and I was crying real tears, laughing. I'm trying, I'm trying to hold myself back and contain right now. But this, I love this. This is awesome.
1: R.I.P. Brian Van Gorder. You, you tried real hard. Uh, this week we're going to give this award to another team that was in position to win, and then found a way to lose it, and that was Cam's Florida State Seminoles.
0: <laughs> hey, wait, 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 wait. wait. Before you put this on me, because I know people are going to say this, I had nothing to do with this. This is all Joey and Mike. <laughs> They're the ones who came up with this. They're the ones who decided what this was going to be. I did the Go ACC moment in the week for this week. This is on them.
2: You know what I realized? I was going to say, you know what I realized? We, we just screwed this up. Um, in honor of Florida State, this is – this is the Charles Kelly Memorial U-Tried Award this oh, week. Oh, um,
1: Just, yeah. Um, are, are we going to rename this award every week against abs- ineffective uh, no. defensive coordinators? Uh, no.
2: <laughs> no, absolutely not. But if, if that's the direction this has to go in, um, you know, we'll let the listeners decide. Um, no sort a Twitter poll. from Yeah, no kidding. Uh, from Brian Van Gorder to now Charles Kelly, um, Florida State's defense there on the final drive, um... I'd like to congratulate them on the Brian Van Gorder slash Charles Kelly Memorial U-Tried Award because North Carolina had 20 seconds remaining and no timeouts, and Florida State's defense still found a way to screw it up. They left a receiver wide open down the seam. Uh, They forced an incomplete pass before, of course, giving up a pass interference penalty that allowed Nick Wilder to hit the 54-yard game-winning field goal. So congratulations to Florida State's defense. Uh, You're the winner of the second annual – annual – uh, second weekly Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award.
1: Florida State defense, you had 20 seconds and about 40 yards between you and field goal territory, and you tried really hard, but it just didn't work out. Congrats. Okay, guys, we're going to get out of here. We're going to uh, – this is – again, so we're breaking this up this week. This is going to be the week five recap episode. We're going to come back later this week and do a week six preview uh, talking about the games going into this weekend. So uh, try to keep that a little bit shorter next time. But uh, ultimately, this has been a lot of fun. Cam, obviously, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having you back.
0: No problem. It's always a pleasure.
1: Absolutely. And, and Mike, always a, always a pleasure with you as well. Um, we'll be back later this week and, and t- ready to talk about some Week 6 action. we got a good slate coming up this weekend as well. But uh, until then, for Cam Underwood and for Mike McDaniel, I'm Joey Weaver. And we'll talk to you next later this week. Go ACC.